Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome to a special edition of Undying Light. I am joined today by two-thirds of the Bible Dingers. One of them who uh, has said he has some prior obligations, he's getting married or some, you know, junk like that. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. nobody totally nobody right. approves of it. Nope. We're all We're all very disappointed in this decision. Marriage, Absolutely. as, as uh, Ryan and I were talking, marriage is just a social construct, and he's just playing into the patriarchy here. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Mark will not be with us, but <clears throat> I got two-thirds, which is, uh, you know, almost good, uh, of the Bible Dingers with me today. I have uh, Nick and Ryan. Gentlemen, you've been on the show before, so go ahead and just say Hello. Hello. So this is your cue. <laughs> ah, you guys are killing me. Go ahead, Nick. You go first. Hello. Hello. Okay. If you don't know who Nick is, he's the he's the uh, face behind the face of the Bible Dingers social media page. So, if you're talking on Instagram, that's who you're talking to, and I apologize. Apologize ahead of time. But yeah, what's up, everybody? I mean. If you've heard my voice before, you know me. If not, yes, I'm Nick from Bible Dingers. Very good friend of Alex Sank, and it is really, uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be on again. Uh, we've been on once before. Alex has been on our show, and we've come once again together just to discuss something that's that's lots of fun, honestly. Yeah, and this time I'm not turning pages either, so. <laughs> yeah, we are. I am, though. I am, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the one who was actually prepared, Ryan, is actually uh, probably going to provide some better context. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know, one thing about Ryan that you guys will know um, before he introduces himself is the fact that Ryan will always come up with questions that stump you. And, and he's brilliant at that. So I'm really nervous because I have no idea what Ryan is going to ask. 
and Ryan is really good at asking questions. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I appreciate that, that I'm good at asking questions. That's, uh, wow, that's flattering. Um, but yeah, my name is Ryan. I'm, I'm another person involved in Bible dingers. I do more of the research and writing as has been alluded to a little bit. I, uh, research and write the outlines for our episodes. I spend most of my time in commentaries and, uh, books about historical context. (laughs) So, uh, Nick and Mark do, uh, the flashy fun stuff on social media and I do the boring old guy stuff in, in books. Well, that's, uh, never a bad thing. I, I kind of fall into that category too. I do a lot of prep work Uh, sometimes, not always when I get ready for a show, but you know, if it's a topic that's difficult, then yeah, I'll spend the time. But like, I, I think like, like, uh, eschatology. Yeah. Well, not, not even because I probably didn't, I didn't do much on this in okay. it, in it, it, it shows. Uh, <laughs> um, it was very expensive. Can I mention that, uh, I listened to a, a large chunk of your episodes and in the beginning, uh, of your series, you were talking about how this is not an extensive study. Make sure you go out and do more research. Uh huh. And we're just scratching the surface. And then towards the end, the last few episodes, you were talking about how this has been a very extensive study. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm tired of talking about eschatology. (laughs) It was, it it became that very quick because, you know, when I first roadmapped this series, I, I wrote it to be. Uh, just just to cover segments, and I wanted the four views. You know, I wanted kind of some things that surrounded it, heaven, hell, uh, and and death, and I wanted to talk about how do we see eschatology in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then I, I was really on the fence about whether or not I wanted to go through all of Revelation, because if I didn't do that, this series would have ended 22 episodes ago, and... Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, have decided to put that much time into doing a round table with you guys or anything like that. I would have just moved on in the next series. But I decided, you know, I did a poll on Instagram and and everybody had voted to go through the book of Revelation. And so I figured, eh, why not? I got some good commentaries and study Bibles. I can pick my way through it. And, uh, yeah, by, by the, by the 18th and 19th chapter, I was just like, I'm so over this. I'm so, yeah. so burnt out on eschatology. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine hitting that. I mean, Revelation is, is I mean, you would need 500 episodes to uh, do it. Yeah. You know, like the way it needs to be done to fully understand it. So I do, <clears throat> I, I, I applaud you for even attempting it because it's, it's definitely a, a, a hefty task, but good job, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really mm. proud of you. And, Thanks. and honestly, you know, I'll plug that show all day long. Cause I, you know, I love your ministry and I love our partnership. So again, thank you for having us on, man. You don't have to I suck up say, to me. 
Yeah, that's right. You're already, you're already, I'm already a patron. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but you I know do. what? We need, we do need more money. So yeah. I do need to kiss up. <laughs> well, if you need more money, I'm desperately in dire need of it. I, um, I did want to add on to the sucking up and say that, uh, it is very impressive on top of that that you pick this subject in particular because this is one of the most difficult subjects in the entire Bible. Oh yeah. And so the fact that you spent like a year on it is is very impressive that you that you were willing to tackle it because most people including myself and most pastors and even a lot of theologians they just don't want to deal with it because it's a headache. It's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, exactly. And another shameless plug: on top of attacking <laughs> Revelation and eschatology, you've attacked the Book of Galatians on your Bible study. Oh, yes. I have no idea how you have time for all this stuff. Yeah, but yeah, your your plate is definitely full. <laughs> yeah, and <clears throat> I was supposed to release another Galatians study today, and I've now missed two weeks in a row on it. But I've been exceptionally busy well it was yesterday today's saturday and uh we had vbs yesterday so and and then we were traveling wednesday and thursday for doctor's appointments and so my week was quickly gone and uh oh i don't know i think i'm in like the end of chapter three so i'm halfway through galatians and and it's just been it's been a work of love so i've been trying to do it as i have the opportunity to put content together and I examine, you know, I've got a couple study Bibles I look at and some commentaries that I look at that I try to, you know, weed my thoughts through and, and then, you know, I gurgitate that and put it on on paper for you to read. So that's a perk for the Undying Light patrons that I give to people's some of that commentaries and behind the scenes work. And if I do for the off chance, actually write a show outline, you'll get that too. I rarely don't though. I think maybe twice in my entire show history I've done a show outline. You're just that smart, man. Yeah. yeah. You I just know it. I don't know if I'm that smart yeah, or in just... In case you guys didn't know listening, this episode is all about Alex. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Everybody's turned turned their uh, show off and moved on to, you know, something else. You know, maybe an R.C. Sproul's sermon. Or just they just go ahead and put on repeat where he yells at everybody. What's wrong with you people? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. That's, that's <laughs> definitely on repeat. Yeah, you can't mess with that. Mm-hmm. So I, or I Paul Washer saying I'm talking. About <laughs> I'm you. talking about you. Oh, classic. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. So I decided when I picked up the show reins in in April of last year after Paul and I split. I was going to finish my little series on the attributes of God, and then I was going to turn and do um, eschatology. And I had that in the back of my mind for a while. I just didn't know the extents of what I was going to do with it. And so I'm looking kind of at my show outline here, you know, like all the shows that I've done. And I, and I started in August uh, 7th of last year, and I had... The intro to eschatology, I think this is the highest listened to show in the whole series. I have 702 downloads for it, and it makes up 0.74% of my entire total show downloads. So pretty substantial. 
And then the next couple, Death, Heaven, and Hell, all ranked in pretty high. And uh, and then the four views brought in six to seven hundred views each as well. And that's that's the episode that we were on with you, right? Right, you guys four were on. Views, that, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, Hell. No, no, no. no you're on no. Hell. Yeah, you're talking about the four different episodes, right? You're, right. Yeah. Oh, four different. Yeah. Yeah. Not that. Gotcha. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, not the views of Hell, but now yeah, we did because uh, we did the dispensational, premillennialist, and historical. And then post, and then the amillennialist, and the amillennialist is pretty high too. That's seven hundred sixty-two. So that might actually be the highest one I have. Yeah, and that, is that one, the one with Pastor Chris. Yeah, and that was with Pastor Chris. I basically was like, "You know what you're doing. I'm going to hand you the reins, and I'll just throw a couple questions at you as we go along." And yeah, and right. he he killed it. He did a wonderful job on that show, and so I'm so thankful for him. And you guys, and and the funny thing is, you are the only guest I've had on this entire series. Oh, well, thank you. You and Pastor Chris. That is that is very flattering. And wow. I never thought about it. I was thinking at some points to get other people to come on, but it never, it never took place. Like I just never, never got it. And it's just not the same, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just once you go dinger, you never go back. So You never go Ooh. back. <laughs> you make that your new I, slogan. I, I don't I, I don't think so, but it was it was nice to hear it. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> so Nick, you had some uh you had some questions you were gonna throw at us. What's up? Well, I I mean this is um, a round table, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, I just figured we can discuss some basic topics, probably really important ones. And with all the stuff going on with COVID-19 and vaccinations, I'm like, what better way to start besides talking about the mark of the beast? Ooh, I, I have so a fun story for that, too, by the way. Why don't we just go around the horn and, and discuss what we think and what are, you know, off the top of our head, what we think about the Mark of the Beast. Ryan, you want to take that one? Uh, I think the Mark of the Beast is clearly the COVID-19 vaccine. <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. Um, I th- it's clearly laid out here in Revelation when there's six ingredients in the vaccine. And, and you have um, to take six dosages over six to- days. Exactly. And so because of that, my hermeneutic tells me that it is the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, but actually, um, joking aside, I, I, I would like to say that I, I, I want to be an amillennialist. Um, so that's where I'm at in my uh, eschatological journey. I came from, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And so I love, I love um, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, but it wasn't necessarily heavy on theology and Bible. And uh, so I, I moved from uh, sort of this life, the spiritual life where I was all about like the gifts and, and talking to prophets and all this stuff. And then I went to, 
a dispensational Bible college. And that kind of like flipped my entire world when it comes to theology. And I, I sort of rejected that whole theological scene and became all about Bible literalism, um, cessationism, you know, like every hardcore theological Calvinism, every like every hardcore theological straight Bible position there is, I totally rejected any sort of Pentecostal theology and moved into this dispensational camp. Hmm. And then the past couple years, honestly, ever since we started doing Bible dingers, I've spent more time researching than I think I did in college even. And so now my my theological framework is sort of shifting again and moving away from dispensational theology. And so I, I say all that to say that I, I am at a point eschatologically where I want to be amillennialist. I think I still default to dispensational premillennialism just because that's sort of my comfort zone mm -hmm. and where I came from. But I desire to be convinced by the amillennial arguments because that's where my theology has been going over the past couple of years. Wow. That's pretty intense. Yeah. Nick, you asked the question, you get to answer it. I'll leave mine for yeah, last. Well, Cause I got a fun story for you. What about the, uh, Mark of the beast? Right. Oh, well, well, I said oh. <laughs> that to say that, well, of course the amillennial view is that mostly it's symbolic and it just means that you're part of the world, you know, you're worldly and that's what the Mark of the beast is. So that's, what I want to believe is what I'm saying. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, um, the mark of the beast is certainly not, in my opinion. So I just preface that by saying, you know, if you ha hold a different view, by all means, we could still be brothers and sisters in Christ. This is maybe, certainly a secondary, maybe, maybe. certainly a secondary doctrine. <laughs> so whatever your take is, unless you believe that the COVID-19 facts is the mark of the beast, we can definitely have a loving conversation. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, the mark of the beast, according to the text, will happen at the same time when the saints are sealed. So it, it's not like a physical manifestation, like a vax, or like that we're going to have tattoos on our forehead, or we're going to have the actual barcode 666 on our forearm or whatever. It's a basic, it's a symbolic seal for those who belong to Satan, in the same way that the Holy Spirit is a seal to those who are gods, right? And something about the text is that the number 666 says that it's the number of man. Not that it's the number on a man. It's a number of man. And anything tripled in scripture, that's why we have holy, holy, holy. That's why we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a lot of things that are tripled in scripture, and it, it means absolute. So anything that's tripled is absolute. So here we have basically a symbolic number that represents the absolute number of humanity and rebellion against God. So that's my take on the mark of the beast. And, you, you know, there's a big question that says, you know, why on their foreheads? Why on their hands? You know, so you ask, where did, where did the Jews carry the word of God? A lot of them had it on, you know. In their head, they had it memorized, or they had, um, they had it, or they had it in the their uh, thing on their head, 
you know, they carried it with them in their arms or, or on their head thing. So basically it's, it's in context appropriate to how they carry the word of God. So it's just a, a basic, simple, applicable question, you know, you know, is the word of God or the word of Satan, you know, which one is it? Which one's ruling your life? Which one are you sworn to? Which one are you sealed to? So that's, that's my uh, interpretation of mm-hmm. the Mark of the Beast. Yeah. So I was <clears throat> talking to a, a, a local pastor yesterday, actually, and uh, he was telling me how he had talked to a gentleman and the gentleman had asked him about the vaccine and he had said, do you believe it's the Mark of the Beast? And and this particular pastor I'm friends with, and um, you know, I was curious at what his response was, and he proceeded to tell this gentleman that, you know, it was a uh, um, a mark that would be given after the rapture of the church, and so he had just, you know, by the very brief kind of outline of it, I was like, eh, that's a very dispensationalist perspective, and, and not that there's anything wrong with that view. I just find that, especially as I've walked through Revelation, there can be a lot of discrepancies uh, with with hyper dispensationalists. Not just not you know the regular dispensationalism in a framework, but there's hyper dispensationalist, which is you know those are the crazy left behind you know mm-hmm. followers, and and I think and I've kind of tried to always equate that to that scene so like people can kind of picture it. Uh, because I don't think dispensationalism is a wrong approach. It's just a different hermeneutic used to apply yeah. to the text. Can you cultivate the dispensational premillennialist view out of Scripture? Yeah, you can. I mean, if if you read the text in that fashion, you absolutely can. But you know, and, and I think going along what Ryan was saying, and as, as I've studied and read more this last year on on just eschatology itself. I have come to realize that I can't take everything literal. I can't take everything um, as, it, it, you know, going to be events to happen, like the bulls, the seals, the trumpet blast in Revelation. Like, if those things were literal, that is I, – I, you can't even explain it. You can't put words down on paper how catastrophic and, and how much destruction would happen – and just just the really obscure events that take place in those times, but to look at it from a symbolic uh, or you know or, or imagery type view allows us to see okay, well, this particular judgment or for in this instance the mark is referring to something that is you know either happening through the whole church age happening through all of time or it's going to happen at a very specific point and with the mark you know nick as you're saying it's it's something that would happen at the point of sealing of the saints you know that those who have the mark would be essentially rejected something that would be given closer to the return of jesus because once that is given on a person you know once they have essentially assigned their allegiance to satan there is no turning back. There is no hope. And so it's my view from what I've read. And I think I covered it just briefly on the show. The mark of the beast is not a vaccine. 
It is not a chip that the government wants to implant into your <laughs> arm. It is it is none of that. It is your allegiance to the world. And and if you trust in the government that much, then yeah, you're probably would fall hand hand over foot for getting the mark. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I um I feel like uh this is definitely a very amillennial crew. Um mm. but so when we were when we did the hell episode, mm-hmm. it it sort of caused me to lean towards annihilationism because I felt like the arguments from the Bible were really solid for annihilationism, except for I believe it's uh, in Revelation twenty, where it's talking about the great white throne judgment, and it talks about how. Um, People are thrown into the fire, and the and they're um, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a verse that I cannot get around for annihilationism. Like that, to me, that clearly says eternal conscious torment, and you can't get around that. And I I cannot mentally get past that verse in Revelation twenty in order to support annihilationism. And then there's, so I say that to say that there's a couple of things for amillennialism that I feel the same way. I feel like amillennialism is for the most part a, a very coherent theological understanding of eschatology. But there's a couple of things that I just can't like wrap my mind around that would in order to support amillennialism. Uh, the first one is how it seems like Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 are distinct events. And what I'm talking about is in Revelation 12 where Satan is thrown down to earth. Um, and then in Revelation 20, it talks about the thousand years, of course. This is really the sort of breaking point for everybody is Revelation 20. Mm-hmm. and the millennium and in revelation 20 it talks about satan being thrown into the pit and the pit is shut and it's sealed over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer and so to me i don't necessarily think that those have to be like literal events but i think like it's it's to me it's kind of easy to concede that these seem like two separate events at least you know there's an event or there's 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 a time where satan is thrown to earth and there's like a separate time where he's sealed in the pit and i to me i can't really like make that jive into being the same time you know what i mean i revelation 12 is the ultimate fall of satan if i remember correctly where he's thrown um, down to earth? Yeah, where he's trying to destroy the seed, right? Yeah. He's trying to destroy the seed. The seed is Christ. So that fall could be talking about, um, you know, the end of time where all of these things are happening simultaneously because he's being snatched up into heaven and it's cast down, right? But you say, what is he cast down with? I think the focus is on what he's cast down with not necessarily the fact that he's on earth because 
again, that whole passage would need proper uh, exposition to really understand what the symbolic is and what what's not. But I think the the real focus of the text is what casts him down, and that's that's the blood of Jesus. So obviously, it's talking about how from the the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, from a result of that, that Satan was bound, that he was cast down, and that he can no longer deceive the nations. And all throughout the book of Revelation, he's, he's called the deceiver. So I think, I think the focus is more on the blood of Jesus. The fact that it's the blood of Jesus is, is, is what cast him down. So we have to bring it back into what actually happened. So that what, what it does is, huh? So you're saying that when Christ was crucified, he was thrown down to earth. And then, so that's describing sort of the crucifixion. And then in 20, where he's thrown into the pit and shut and sealed it. I know classically the amillennialist position is that um, the evangelization of the world. So Revelation 12 is the crucifixion, you think, and Revelation 20 is the church age? Yes. I can see that. But I don't I don't have the text in front of me. I have to look at it to properly do, you know, line by line as to Jesus. But th- th- those are my thoughts from the surface. Okay, uh, but, okay. but, but it is that the word of God and the blood of Jesus is what casts him down. So that's why I believe that the bound of Satan happened at the... Uh, at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So that's when the bound started. So this gives us a perfect uh, segue into what I believe, and that's that uh, the millennial period, which is not the literal 1,000-year reign, but the, the symbolic, literal reign of Christ, a number symbolic, but the reign is not. That the reign, the, millennial, uh, the millennium happened from the death, resurrection, and uh, ascension of Jesus, and into the time of his second coming. So that's what the millennium is. It's talking about that time period in between those two events. Um, and if anybody doesn't know what a millennial typically believes, it's that. It's that the tribulation and the millennium is happening at the same time, and it starts from where Jesus ascended into heaven. Um, and here on earth, we are exper- experiencing the tribulation, and that there is no 1,000 literal reign on Jesus, uh, of Jesus on this earth. Right. I would uh, <clears throat> agree with that perspective, obviously, because that's where I've really come to fall. And <clears throat> one of the things that I've really tried to do with Revelation, with that series, is just be very explicit with how the parts of the book are broken down, not necessarily the timelines that are given. Because if we were to take and say Revelation is chronological and the events that will happen will happen because, you know, that's how you read a book is beginning to end. And so the events will happen as they as they show up in the book. And Revelation is the worst book to apply that idea to. It's it is it is it gives us so many things that would happen all out of sequence because why on earth in chapter 12 do you have Satan being cast down when you have 10 more chapters of Revelation to go through? 
it just doesn't, you know, the whole, so the whole like take it literal beginning to end type thing is another, it's another stumbling block for me right there. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that we can't look and say, okay, what is John writing about here in chapter 12? And what does it mean for Satan to be cast down? And I do agree with Nick. It was the blood of the lamb that defeated him. And I, and I also think it's back to the cross with Christ to bind Satan. But that doesn't mean that he's, you know, bound and thrown into a pit and unable to do anything. He just doesn't have the influence that he had prior to the death and resurrection of Christ. He especially doesn't have the influence over those who uh, are believers and those who are elected to be God's children. So I think that's an important point to make, actually. I just want to make a point, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, when Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, Satan was bound. And people get caught up with that, right? Mm-hmm. But we have to pay attention to the text. It's not that he's bound in the sense that he's not able to affect anything on earth. But what he's called the deceiver all throughout the book. So what it's saying is that he does not have the ability to prevent salvation for the nations. It's not saying that he doesn't have the ability to affect people or to influence people or to tempt people. It's just saying that he cannot deceive the nations up to, up until when Jesus came, the gospel was primarily shared within the Jewish community for the Jews. Right. You know, once in a while, You'll have, I know, like the scholars out there are listening to this and they're like, oh, no, no, no. What, what about, what about Rahab, who is from Jericho? You know, what about Nineveh? You know, Nineveh is probably the, the biggest example we can use out of scripture, where 120,000 people heard uh, Jonah's preaching and converted, right? Yeah. So am I saying that it can't happen? You know, that, that the gospel can't? Uh, be, reach certain people that God has ordained to reach? No, I'm not saying that. But if we compare our time with the time back then, we would notice that the gospel is in every nation, that it, it, almost in every language. So it definitely has been widespread compared to how it used to be. And, um, you know, for the most part, the gospel did not go to the nations back then. So he was bound in that sense. As a deceiver, he could limit the spread of the gospel, but he, he, he once he's bound, he can certainly continue to um, affect us and, like I said, tempt us. So that that's my take on it. But I know Ryan had a really good question about the bound, so that's why I stopped there, because he, he presented me with a, a question a couple weeks ago, last week or something, that I think is important to ask. Ryan, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. It's actually what I kind of wanted to talk about next. Um, and that's sort of that I feel like the, the amillennial claim in Revelation 20, that this is about Satan not being able to deceive the nations when it comes to evangelization and the gospel and stuff. I have... I don't know. I just have a couple problems with that, and I'm I'm not on here to debate with you guys. I'm, I this, no, this is, is me an open coming discussion, to you round table. as a yeah. This is me coming to you as a dispensational premillennialist that desires to be an amillennialist, <laughs> and I feel like hopefully since you guys are in that camp, maybe you can help me with these questions. Um, but 
the, the couple problems that I have with that, the first one, which I think is a little bit more of a minor problem, is that when Revelation 20 talks about shutting and sealing in the pit, to me, that just doesn't say, like, partially, he's partially stopped from deceiving because I think the inference with amillennialism is that he the the and this is the more major problem is that the reason why the gospel wasn't going forth previous to this is because Satan was deceiving the nations. So to me that's sort of a that's sort of a large soteriological claim that in the old testament people didn't have this relationship with God because Satan was deceiving them. And the reason I have a problem with that is because you don't really see any scriptures that would infer that, I don't think, in the rest of the Bible, except for this one in Revelation 20. And it's, and it's sort of based on an eschatological belief. So I think that's sort of a, a large soteriological claim that is birthed out of eschatology that comes out of this sort of <clears throat> obscure verse in Revelation 20. So that's sort of my major problem is that the claim with amillennialism is that before the sealing of Satan, the reason why other nations did not have a relationship with God is because Satan was deceiving those, those nations. Yeah, so I, mean, I, I would I would agree with that claim uh, for the reason that I just said that there are there are very a handful of examples of, of the gospel being spread outside of the Jews and the Gentiles being, uh, you know, witnessed to and evangelized to and changed. Um, and, and the other thing is, um, the other thing is, if we see the ascension, because that's my claim, right, that the binding started at the ascension and we move towards acts chapter one where it talks about the ascension we'd see that jesus's call and and i can read it here is but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witness in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth this is one of the first times that we're hearing this call uh we don't hear it in the old testament um, so we would have to come up with a reason why. Uh, I think it's a safe reason to say that Satan had a lot more influence than he did uh, after the ascension. Why? Because it was sealed. It was done. The work was finished. This is why Jesus says it is finished, right? Satan is bound. He no longer has the influence of the nations. And now the call, as Acts 1.8 says, is to go uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all of the world essentially how come we don't hear that anywhere else why is the call appropriately put right after the ascension so i don't so my problem with that is that there's sort of an assumption because of your eschatological views that it's because satan was deceiving the nations prior to this but i think you're talking about a verse that's sort of specifically pointing to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now, which is which is unique to the church age. That that didn't happen in the Old Testament, which is why you see 
like King David in the Psalms praying, do not take your spirit from me, because certain people would have the Holy Spirit at certain times. Not everyone was indwelt with the Holy Spirit until after the day of Pentecost. Um, and so to me, I would say he's saying that and specifically talking about the upcoming day of Pentecost, because now his people will all be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so now we sort of have that power to go out and tell the nations about Jesus. I think the focus is the ascension, though, which which is appropriate to the claim that I'm making that it happened after the ascension. That's why the the section is called the ascension. I think if without the ascension, we would never have the Holy Spirit. And without the without the ascension, none of this would ever happen. There would be no Jesus. The, our God would be false. I think the whole point of our God is the fact that it rests upon the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. If you remove those two things, our whole religion, our whole truth falls apart. And, and another claim that I will make is from the beginning of time, Satan has been known to be the deceiver. If we see the, the story of Adam and Eve, he comes on the tree as a serpent, you know, and he deceives them into thinking that, that, that God is keeping something from them. If he deceived from the beginning of time, why is it such a jump to assume that he can continue to deceive until he is bounded by the blood of Jesus? I think that's a safe assumption. I, so uh, my, my problem isn't that he can deceive or, or the fact even that nations before the day of Pentecost really had this relationship with God. I don't, I don't disagree with either of those. My problem is sort of the reasoning behind it, that I don't see any verses in the Bible saying that this is the reason, and the reason is because Satan was deceiving the nations prior to the day of Pentecost. And of course, the Bible isn't explicit on a lot of things. It's not explicit. I, I don't know. I think, I think Paul would disagree. Uh, you know, Second Corinthians 4, um, I don't want to read a whole text to you but in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel the glory of christ who is the image of god i mean paul agrees that satan is is the god of this world right in the case of the god of this world he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers satan is blinding i gotta tell you i feel like this is a verse that's actually supporting what i'm saying because Paul is living in the church age. He's setting up the church age and saying in, in his age, in the age of this writing, Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers. So that doesn't really speak to a time where Satan is sealed up and not blinding the mind of unbelievers, which is the, the claim of amillennialism. You know what I, mean? I don't know. I, this could be a circular conversation. It could, and I don't want to. I really don't want to keep railing on it because. I mean, even like I even in, saying I, I want. There's a lot of stuff, wanna, though. There is, and I kind of want to move there, on, and I don't want to <laughs> rail on amillennialism anymore because I want to be an amillennialist. No, but it's not railing. Really, it's it's honest question. Yeah, this is kind of why I brought up the, the verse about hell, which causes me to not be able to be full on annihilationist because i can't get around this verse that seems to support eternal conscious torment it's the same thing with these couple things with amillennialism i just can't like wrap my mind around how these things jive with scripture 
these these couple things and then the last thing but I, even, I I even wanna... the the, perp- the the parables the purpose of the parables in mark 4 when jesus is talking and he's saying and he and he said to them do you not understand this parable how then will you understand all the parables the sower sows the word and these are the ones along uh hold on let me find it and these are the sower the sows the word and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them so this is this he's literally saying that satan is the cause that satan is the one that's taking them that that he is a deceiver we know that he can't do that after the ascension we know that he can't be the one to take someone's uh you know to take to take away the word that is sown in them them he know we know that uh, how do we know he that? cannot be the one how do we know because that, you're though? sealed because you're sealed by the holy in spirit Revelation 20 because you're sealed by the no, holy spirit he's talking about people before they hear the word before before the seed takes root and that and also i want to point out that this is just saying this is just one of several reasons why the seeds aren't taking root it's also because of rocky ground uh and bad soil there's lots of reasons why it's not taking root, and it's not solely because Satan is deceiving them. Yes, but like but, I said, I don't. I really don't want to keep hitting on it because I feel like we're kind of going in circles. Can I bring up mm-hmm. like the the last problem that I have with it, and then sure. I honestly want to spend a, a lot of the time railing against postmillennialism if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I I don't agree with that at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, this show was not supposed to be about amillennialism, and it wound up being it's about amillennialism. Right. So my last, my last problem with amillennialism, and then I want to rail on postmillennialism if I can, is um, the use of the word resurrection in Revelation twenty verse five, and how I think I, I wrote it down somewhere. Hold on. There's there's thirty nine times where resurrection appears in the Bible. Uh-huh. And the 38 of those times, it's talking about physical bodily resurrection. And this this is when it's talking about the resurrection of the martyrs, right? So the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first oh. resurrection. <clears throat> so I don't know. That's that's my last one. And I don't think it's as major as the last problem I brought up, the soteriological implications. I'm not, I'm not getting the problem. Can you, can, can you so the, repeat the problem that was, Yeah, so the problem is in all millennialism, they would say that this resurrection of the martyrs is sort of uh, metaphorical. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's the resurrection to life after death. Um, so are they saying that glorification my, is not true? No, my what I'm saying is my problem with it is that the the original word anastasis, the Greek the Greek word here, every every single occurrence in the Bible means a physical bodily resurrection, and so I'm saying in this portion, it I I don't know if I can accept the fact that this is the one instance in the entire Bible where it's not talking about physical bodily resurrection it's talking about some sort of metaphorical resurrection and the only reason why we say that it's talking about a metaphorical resurrection is sort of our eschatological presuppositions if we are which 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 resurrection are you saying that is symbolic which one 
at the end of time? I'm saying no. In, in verse five, so a, a pre-millennial, a dispensational pre-millennialist would say that there is going to be an actual physical bodily resurrection of these martyrs. They will walk on the earth, so on and so forth, which to me is, is sort of heinous. It's, a, it's sort of a crazy belief, but I feel like it sort of makes more, it's more clearly what the Bible is saying, because everywhere else in the Bible, when this word anastasis is used, it's talking about physical bodily resurrection. What chapter is and that? I don't, I don't have a revelation. Revelation over. 20, revelation 20 verse five is what I'm talking about. And it's talking, it's, it's, the, the problem chapter revelation 20 where everyone uh, yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. splits and uh, so it's talking about these people who are resurrected and an amillennialist would say when it comes to this first resurrection that it's metaphorical that it's symbolic and a a premillennialist a dispensational premillennialist i i keep saying dispensational because i don't know the historic view too well a dispensational premillennialist would say that this is a physical bodily resurrection um and so it wouldn't make sense so a, a premillennialist would argue that it doesn't make sense that this is metaphorical when in the rest mm. of the bible it's actual literal physical bodily resurrection this is the word used for when Lazarus was raised from the dead, this is the word used for when Jesus brings people back to life bodily in his ministry. It's the same word used when Jesus raises from the dead, anastasis. And then it's used here in Revelation. And so the problem I'm saying is that you have to, the only way this could mean metaphorical is if you, you have these presuppositions and it has you. You have to sort of make this word conform into your view of eschatology, rather than sort of just letting it tell you what it is. Rather than just taking the the Bible sort of at face value and reading it for what it says. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm I'm okay with not knowing something, which I don't know the answer to that. I want to read this. Um, but, I want to read this for you guys. Maybe help answer the question a little bit. But this yeah. is from some of my notes that I have pulled some of my sources. It says we have seen the vision of Revelation twenty verses four through six describes the thrones in heaven on which the souls of the faithful Christians are seated during the intermittent state between their death on earth and the return of Jesus from heaven. This was this has provided the where, when, and who of John's vision. The heart of this message is seen in the what of verses 4 through 6. John answers by saying that the saints reigned with Christ and called, his, called this the reward, the first resurrection. Uh, the premillennial view of history sees the statement that these souls come to life, in quotes, as requiring a physical resurrection. Premillennialists therefore teach that when Jesus returns, believers who died have their souls restored to their bodies in order to reign with Christ on earth. Only later, after the thousand years, as the uh, are the bodies of the unbelievers resurrected in order to stand in final judgment. 
The strength of the premillennial argument notes a parallel between the believers who, quote unquote, come to life at the beginning of the thousand years and the unbelievers who come to life when the thousand years have ended. Since the same Greek word, uh, as you've pointed out, Ryan, uh, is used in both cases, uh, the amillennialist view teaches that the thousand years symbolically refers to the present church age, has a number of compelling responses to this argument. The first response is to note that not only uh, is to uh, note not only that the Bible nowhere else speaks of a thousand year interval between the physical resurrection of believers and unbelievers, but also that the Bible positively rules out such doctrine. An example is Jesus' teaching about the return to earth and the immediate judgment. So it really doesn't give too much into uh, whether it's a physical resurrection into the glorified body or, or not. But the amillennialist view would be one that it's there's no time gap or anything given to, sh- to difference the martyrs being resurrected from the unbelievers. It could be all one instance of time per se, because here at Revelation 20, we're at the very end of all of it. You know, we're at the final judgment, essentially, mm-hmm. just a few verses from it. And so it would only it would make sense, at least from from me, it would make sense that this is, you know, the resurrection that has been talked about and promised to us by Paul and Jesus. We get this one time and then the unbelievers are resurrected and then they stand before judgment and, you know, and then the world commences thereon. But yeah, you have me on a rabbit hole right now. Um, looking up this Greek word right now in logos, but, uh, either way, it's okay not to know something. Mm -hmm. You got me hungry to look it up. So I think that's the purpose, right? That's the point. Ask questions. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because, you know, this is one of those things that I I want to understand, you know, I want to marry it up. And I I dislike the um, argument that I've heard. Like I watched uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner talk about this, who I love. Tom Schreiner is amazing, very humble, very smart. And we have him on the show this coming season, I want to mention. But uh, he he was sort of supporting the amillennial view and saying, basically, that Revelation 20 is the only place where you can find that there's two resurrections, you know, before and after the thousand-year millennium. And it just doesn't seem coherent with the rest of the Bible. But I just, like... I don't know. I just don't, I just dislike that argument that the fact that it's only in one place in scripture means that like we have to somehow look over it because there's several other parts of scripture that you only see in one place and we've built doctrine on it or, you know, we have beliefs based on it. There's the tower of Babel and creation and Genesis, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of areas of the Bible where it's really only talked about one time and we build doctrine on it. So I, I don't know. I just don't like that that argument that it's only in one spot, so we can't build a doctrine off of it because we do that for a lot of doctrine. Yeah, but, yeah. I, and and I, 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 again, I always say he asks the best. He asks the best questions. So um, I will 
I will get an answer for this. I promise. I'm going to keep looking it up, keep researching it. But you know, you know, it, it's it's safe to say that no matter what eschatological view you have, I mean, there's always going to be some type of hole in it. Not to say that that there's not truth, but in reality, we just, you know, that unless you're a scholar, there's always going to be a question that's like you got to have to wrestle with and come up with an answer with and be okay with that answer. I mean, that's any view, really. People just sit on an answer and they, they accept the answer to be true. But with all of these eschatological views, there's holes in almost every one of them. There's like mm-hmm. iffy points, you know. And in the end, that's why a lot of people just pick pan mill, you know. In the end, everything's going to pan out. It's going to pan out. Uh, yeah, hmm. yeah. I, I don't. I don't like that. I feel like it's a cop out. But unless you spend your whole life wrestling with these answers and and really have like you write a book on it, there's always going to be something that makes you scratch your head. And in reality, yeah. I think I think it's done on purpose so that we continue studying it, and and we continue to seek God and and study His Word, and, and find out what the 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 most the truest. Um, you know, point is, but I'm sure I'll wrestle with this a couple months. And, and I think that's what God wants us to do. Yeah. He wants us to keep searching, keep digging, study yourself approved and love them with our minds. So I like questions like this. It, it gets me hungry and it gets me going. So I hope it does that to the listeners too. Yeah. Whenever I um, was sort of preparing for this episode with Alex, um, those, these are, these were the things that stuck out for me because I was, I was starting to prepare to support amillennialism, like I said, because I want to be amillennialist. And so I I started sort of researching, reading some books about it and stuff. And then these arguments just couldn't go away with me for these arguments supporting premillennialism. But I do want to say that dispensational premillennialism, so much of it just seems so far-fetched to me you know like the fact that people will be bodily walking around on earth and that they'll be unbelievers even though jesus is on earth reigning like in israel you know to me the fact that people will still like not believe in jesus somehow just doesn't make sense to me it seems yeah, to, that makes it, it, it almost contradicts scripture because what it's trying to do is, you know, go down that rabbit hole of, you know, during the thousand year reign, people will then have the choice to decide to follow Jesus or not. It's like, but that's already going on now. Like you, you already have this choice. Why would we want to allow more people? Because the argument then can be fulfilled that, um, if the gospel hasn't reached all of the people, then why would Jesus be here? Because if those who are born into the new heavens and new earth time, as this view believes, they will have the, the ability to choose, which would mean that more people then come to know Christ or reject him. And so the fulfillment of the gospel reaching the nations is kind of a null and void prophecy. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, you know, Jesus Christ is, is taught of in, in all scripture as a final judge. I mean, you know, and, and that's why I believe that the second coming and the rapture are one of the same. I mean, I don't know if I want to talk about rapture here, 
I know Alex and I disagree. Um, but he basically comes back as a final judge to destroy his enemies and redeem his saints. We also see that in Romans 8, and I'm only mentioning this a shameless pl plug to our Romans 8 study on Instagram. Um, we were talking about how creation is groaning and waiting. It just eager for those for that glorification for the redemption of our bodies so you're telling me that jesus finally comes back he finally here the ultimate judge to to destroy his enemies and redeem his saints and he's like hold hold, hold, hold up i'm gonna be here first for a thousand years and it, it doesn't make sense and then and then with dispensational pre-mill the thing with Israel is what really throws me off. I mean, we know that the church is is one fat big church with Gentile and Jew alike. I mean, Paul teaches it all throughout the book of Romans and many other places for that matter. But we'll say just for the sake that they're Jew. I mean, that's why in most cases, Israel for me is talking about is, is, is symbolic. It's, it's double meaning. Um, but But that's a whole other discussion. But you're saying that they're going to come back. And, and reign separately in Israel and be different for the rest of the world just because of where they're from. I mean, that's a hard pill for me to swallow. It really is, just for me. Well, I, I don't want to argue with you, because, but I, just, I do want to say what just popped in my head. is Isn't that what the case was in the Old Testament? Wasn't it sort of Israel just reigning on their own because they were God's chosen people? Yes and no, but that's where you could start discussing this bound of Satan again. How much influence yeah. does Satan have on the world? Yeah. And, and, and the goal. So, again, your hermeneutic should always be uh, that the black and white hermeneutic is very dangerous because what you're saying is it's it just there's only one meaning of the text. But we know, uh, I mean, people like to throw daggers at us that say Amil is is um, a spiritual position. Right. But in reality, the spiritual elements are more real than what we're experiencing here. So we know that that our hermeneutic as Amil people and I'm a covenant, you know, I hold to covenant theology is the fact that from the very beginning of time, everything is types and shadows. Even the temple was a type and a shadow showing us that we would be the ultimate temple, that the Holy Spirit would be in us through the blood of Jesus. Everything, everything is pointing to Jesus. Everything from the beginning of time is is. Is pointing to redemption. Is pointing to types of Christ, shadows of Christ. I mean, it's it's unavoidable. Um, taking a black and white uh, reading to anything is dangerous, and not understanding that all scripture, almost all scripture, has multiple meanings, multiple layers to it. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, we can just keep going on and on. I think we've been talking long enough. <laughs> we've we've broken the hour mark on the show, but. Uh... I'm not in any hurry or anything. I know you guys probably have plans and stuff. I've got a busy day ahead of me, but I have yeah, got, me too. you know, I've always got time for one more question or something that you guys are need to get off your chest or rant about or want to. I feel like I do, Alex. I feel like I do. Fire away. Okay. And I also am sorry because I feel like I, um, I, I took over your show. No, no, not at all. This I'm, is great. I feel bad for it. No, because people finally don't have to listen to me babble on for an hour. So <laughs> this is this is a blessing for them. <laughs> okay, so I, I feel like, um, 
you guys had some good answers for the uh, millennial questions. And I did kind of want to get off my chest my problem with post-millennialism, if that's okay. Even yes, though I love, post-millennial. I, I feel like, okay. And I, I got to give you credit because I feel like you didn't give post-millennialism much of a platform on your show. So much credit <laughs> to you. They, uh, got, they got one but, show and even that was, was <laughs> half done. <laughs> but I will say that there are some brilliant post-millennialists. I believe uh, Doug Wilson is a post-millennialist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I believe James White is post-millennialist. He James is. White, Jeff Durbin. Durbin. They're very yep. well-known ones. Durbin. Yeah, Apologia. Yeah. So there's some really smart guys out there that are post-millennialists, but I um, I can't get around it because of sort of where I think we come from as uh, the Bible Dingers podcast and what what we always talk about is really the context. That sort of takes up like half of our episode is talking about the author, the audience, the date of writing, the purpose, because without those things, I feel like you really can't understand what the book is about you know if, if you don't uh-huh. understand who wrote it the person obviously god wrote it but who god wrote it through who god wrote it to originally you know the letter originally and then what the purpose was behind it and stuff like that and so that's my biggest issue with post-millennialism is that post-millennialism it it requires you to sort of throw away the context, to be honest, in my mind. And and I'm sure these really smart people can argue against me, but in order to accept post-millennialism, you have to accept that revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Mm -hmm. And to me, I can, I just simply cannot accept that because I think that, Revelation was clearly written in the mid nineties AD due to all the, all the supporting facts of that. And so I would have to sort of throw away this, this requirement of context and the date of authorship to be a post-millennialist. And I can't do that. And I, if it's okay, I actually wrote down why I think it was written in 94 to 96 AD. Go for it, bro. Is that, too, yeah. is that like too much? No, not at Go all. Go for it. Okay. So I have four reasons why I think that it was written between 94 and 96 AD. And I feel like a couple of these are sort of indisputable. And the first one mainly, to me, is the most indisputable. And that's that all the early church leaders said that it was written between 94 and 96 AD. And that that's Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Victorinus, Eusebius, and Jerome. They all, all those guys said that it was written towards the end of Domitian's reign and Domitian was uh, ruler of Roman Empire between 81 and 96 AD. And so they were saying it was towards the end, which is like 94 to 96 AD. And all of these early church leaders are really the ones who told us who writ all of the books of the Bible mm-hmm. and when they were all written. So in order to accept post-millennialism, you would have to say, but so in order to accept post-millennialism, 
but also affirm the inerrancy and authority of the scripture, you would have to say that they're right about every other book of the Bible, except for Revelation. They got this one wrong. You would have to claim. And I, I feel like I can't accept that argument. You know, like I, that would sort of make my understanding of the, the rest of scripture crumble. If these early church leaders don't know when these books were actually written. And these people were around during the time of the apostles. I'm not, these people didn't come a couple hundred years later. They were around during the time of the apostles. And so we take their historical commentary as fact, as Christians who believe in the authority of scripture, you have to take what these early church leaders say as fact and post-millennialists cannot do that. They, if if Revelation was written before 70 AD, they have to throw out what all these early church leaders said about when Revelation was written. So that's honestly my main problem with post-millennialism is that these all these early church leaders said that it was written between 94 and 96 AD, and you have to throw that out to be a post-millennialist. Also, the seven churches in Revelation, um, those churches were actually really strong churches during the time of Paul's writings, which was before 70 AD. Um, and so you kind of have to have this gap of time between when they were strong, reliable, God-fearing churches. And then in Revelation, we see um, John correcting all these problems in the churches, specifically the Nicolaitans um, are mentioned in Revelation 2. And these, this sect, these heretics didn't even exist during Paul's time when he wrote his letters. He didn't, he didn't say anything about these people. And his letters were written mostly before, well, pretty much all of them were written before 70 AD. And so since these people didn't exist during Paul's time and the churches need to, needed to have some time to backslide, I also can't see this being written before 70 AD because these, these heretical sects didn't exist before 70 AD. And these churches were really strong churches previous to 70 AD. And then also on top of that early church tradition has it that John was exiled during Domitian's reign. And keep in mind that Domitian reigned between 81 and 96 AD which is at least 10 years after 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. And, and also early church tradition has it that when Domitian died in AD 96, John was allowed to return home. And most people accept that Revelation was written during his time on Patmos when he was exiled on Patmos. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was clearly exiled after 81 AD, which is when Domitian started his reign over the Roman Empire. And since he was allowed to, and so John also clearly lived after 96 AD because early church tradition has it that after 96 AD, he went back home. He didn't die on Patmos. And so I I say all those things to say that the the context, the authorship, the date of writing, it just, you you can't, you can't be a post-millennialist 
and know what the context is of the writing of these books, I feel like. And because of that, I feel like I can't accept post-millennial. I can't accept the fact that the things in Revelation came true when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD because this book, I feel like, was clearly written 26 years after the destruction Mm -hmm. of Jerusalem. And so I feel like you sort of have to this is another thing. I, I have a real problem with presuppositions and forming doctrine based on presuppositions, but you you can only say that this all, everything in Revelation lines up with post-millennialism if you have the presupposition of post-millennialism. You know, like to me, it's sort of a circle argument, but I digress. Well, it, Those it's, are, the, it's really, there. Uh, this is one of my this is one of my issues with with post mill is the fact that theonomy and post mill pretty much go hand in hand. And and that's it's their understanding of the law that leads them to their hermeneutic or revelation. But my problem, my biggest problem um, outside of the ones that you've already mentioned with post mill is that because they they believe that everything is inevitable anyway and you need to accept or or reject right now because it's it, everything is inevitable. It, it it impacts their way of evangelism. So you'll see a lot of these post mills, even though I love them. I really do. I love them. Um, Brian knows how much I love James White. But what it does is it kind of affects your character and makes you arrogant and makes you like cutthroat because you're like, everything's inevitable anyway. Take it or leave it. Like just shoving the gospel down people's throats and saying, Jesus died for you. Accept it. Because it's inevitable, and that's what it does. And, and what they don't do is what Paul did for Athens: is is learn, learn their 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 surroundings, understand what the most appropriate way of teaching the gospel is, learning what what hits home with them, and and understanding uh, gospel presentations and all that other stuff. It's just like take it or leave it, because it's inevitable. And that's one of my biggest problems. I think evangelism is so important to being a Christian that our hermeneutic and our eschatology should be hand in hand with a uh, with a passionate pursuit to go out and preach the gospel in the most effective way possible. So I think being a post mill, most of them, I, I can't say this black and white. So forgive me if you're post mill and listening and, 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 and disagree. Um, I love you and we can totally have a loving conversation. But from my experience, it does create kind of an arrogance because when you think something's inevitable, it's like, you're arrogant about it. You're, you're passionate about, about the inevitable. So you're like, this is what it is. Take it or leave it. Goodbye. And they kind of lose patience with the people who reject God. What about the utopia of post-millennialist that, well, that that's obviously false. Yeah. Because we see even in Psalm two, uh, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The Kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. Uh, you know, against the Lord and against his anointed, that that's something that is talking about not only then, but now everyone, uh, all the, you know, the political, the, the politics, the governments, everyone, the, the kings of the earth, so to speak, are in constant rebellion against God. But they believe everything's going to be amazing. When is that going to happen? Because it hasn't been amazing from the, from when Jesus was here. Mm-hmm. All the apostles were, uh, suffered 
a horrific death. And that's one of the series we're covering. Uh, not all of them, but some of them, most of them, horrific deaths. If utopia was inevitable, don't you think the apostles would have been like before they died? They're like, everything's going to be all right. Don't, mm-hmm. like, they, no, mm-hmm. they never said that. They never said that. They weren't the Bob Marleys of the Bible. I, I had no choice. I'm sorry, guys. But, no. Easy man. Yeah. Easy man. Easy man. But th- Easy that man. utopia, I, I, I want to be post-mill. And like Ryan wants to be Amil, I want to be post mill. Don't you think I want to experience a utopia? Oh yeah. Like, but like, from the beginning, like from the Psalms, Psalm two, like I said, like it's 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 literally describing the realities of our world, and that people need to come to Christ because the utopia, the glorification, the amazing life that we look forward to is not the utopia here on earth. That's the beauty of the gospel is that it leads you to everlasting eternal life with God in a place that we can't even comprehend how amazing it is. And day and night, day and night, people are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're praising God. They're experiencing his glory. And that's what I look forward to. I could care less that there's a utopia here, an inevitable utopia, because the law of God is going to completely take over every aspect of our lives that seems like we're a bunch of robots mm-hmm. you know no i want i want to be able to witness some believers i want to be able to be used as a tool to advance the kingdom of god i don't want to experience utopia even though it would be nice i want to be used you know how much could we actually be vessels and and tools of god if everything is just plain old fine it seems like our existence will be pointless i agree I- can I jump in and say that uh, when it comes to the post-millennial utopia, um, it does seem, to me, it seems so subjective on whether or not the world is getting better or worse. I, I feel like you could argue either one, to be honest. I, I think in America, a lot of Christians right now are are probably arguing that the world is getting worse because of yes. the politics and because of what we see across the world. But I would like to mention, and I, I appreciated that you noted several times in your, in your show, Alex, that you know, persecution to Americans is quite foreign, you know, mm-hmm. like the, of course it is, it, it is getting, I suppose, subjectively, but I think it is probably getting worse for Christians right now uh in the western world but it's it's not anything that christians went through during the the reign of nero 2000 years ago when they were getting thrown to get eaten by lions as sport mm-hmm. or or lighting up roads because they were getting crucified and lit on fire on the side of the road and so yeah. you could say in a sense that the world is getting better because we don't see things like that we don't see things in america at least like the antebellum south slavery you know it seems like maybe in general humanity might be getting more moral but then at the same time i feel like it's it's so subjective you could say the exact opposite you could say that the world's getting worse the taliban just took over afghanistan you know yep people are people are falling away and hating christianity more and more so to me it's so it's such a non-argument to say either side that the 
that the world's getting better or worse because it's so subjective i feel like based on your view of history and based on the view on your view of current world events yeah anyway guys I, i'm getting two calls from my professor back to back so i gotta go Ooh. i don't All know right. why he's calling me I don't know why he's following me, but maybe I did something wrong. And it's you need, you me need to you need to go exegete all <laughs> all six hundred and thirteen Levitical laws. There we go. There you go. All right, guys, we're gonna wrap it. And uh, I thank you both for coming on. And I think this was a great show to put this uh, series to rest. And I'm glad to be done with it. So thank you, gentlemen, for taking the time out of your Saturday mornings and. Uh, spending it with me and discussing and debating and just uh, working through some of these hard topics. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right. We yeah, will. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and kill the recording and I am out. On whoa, 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 You didn't notify us. This call may be monitored for quality assurance. Yes. <laughs> and and used for training purposes. Wait, I didn't realize you were going to release this. I thought we were just talking as friends. Yeah. Now <laughs> <laughs> uh, this will be uh this will be for the four people who actually listen to my show. We all know you have a lot more than that. Uh, it's it's been pretty dry lately so it's been dry um i'm one of those just so you know trying to see what my i wish yeah, i could ryan, see ryan binged about what 25 episodes probably around 30 something yeah i didn't i i didn't listen to the entire series um because i just didn't have enough time between when I realized between when we talked about us coming on the show mm -hmm. and today, but I've, I've listened to probably more than half of them at least in the past few weeks.
that's a that's pretty substantial that's a lot of listening that's a lot of a lot of me i would i don't envy you at all i, I your well, voice maybe, is very familiar to me right now <laughs> maybe he had some good naps because you know we always talk about how yeah i mean that's so that's soothing. what you got to do you just plug me in and you're like ah, i finally get some sleep and just gone <laughs> You do have a lot of relaxing episodes because I suspect that you're doing it either early in the morning or at night when your family's asleep. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I have to <laughs> tone down the anxiety a little bit. And, yeah, and it's probably, I, it's possibly on a whole nother floor, I'm assuming. Well, n- I am in the basement right now. And so I have a bit of a buffer from my family. Uh, but normally, but the last probably. 20 episodes i've recorded upstairs in my office which is right across the be- uh, hall from our master bedroom so nice so just so you know for me i have no buffer whatsoever i'm in my car oh that's my buffer being in a complete different location so <laughs> that makes ryan sense. has a buffer ryan's upstairs i am I, I don't have like a true door to my upstairs though. It's kind of like a, a rolly door, you know. But That's all right. Better than nothing. Yeah, I've got. Uh, I turned this little little back room in our basement into kind of a recording studio and put sound dampening up on it and. Nice. Got. Uh, yeah. Got it all, it's, uh... it's pretty legit. Yeah, I know. I've seen it. It's undying light after dark, right? Yeah, yeah. So I got the strobe light and the disco lighting in here and <laughs> uh, neon lights. You know. No, you don't. I do have I do have wall lighting in here. So the LED strip. Nice. So it looks I'm, legit. I think he has a a one what, what are those uh oh, I forgot the name of it. Those big heads that you hang on. Yeah, on the fat wall. fat head. Yeah, fat of heads. Who? Yeah, you have a fat head. Of, of me. Yeah, of Nick shut up no i have one it's the undying light logo it actually says oh my gosh undying light studios on it no way that's awesome yeah. where'd you get that Fatheads. you can make a custom one yeah that's sweet yeah, yeah. that's awesome that is sweet i'll have to send you guys a picture of it sometime all right I've well I'll uh, let's actually start the show. I'm just recording here, but we'll start the show over on uh, my Heidenberg. As long as you ladies are ready. Oh, we're ready. Yeah. All right. That that, that banter was perfect. What are you talking about? Yeah, the, or opening show banter. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll cut pieces of that and slip Wait, it. Wait, what is this? Bible dingers? I forgot. Slip it in through the show. <laughs> we'll do little drop-ins. Little sound clips of like you guys. You should. That would be cool. I, you know what? I had thought about it going and doing little pieces, but I'm I'm not that creative. So, mm. all right, let's get going. Marcus, if you want something, just ask. I love how Nick always signs Mark up to do stuff. Always. He signs him up to do. Well, <laughs> he signs him up to do anything for everybody. As if Always. Mark has like no responsibilities. He's just <laughs> waiting for Nick to give him work, yes. work to do. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Guess what? It's partially the reason why we've grown as much as we've grown because I just throw stuff at Mark that comes out marvelous. 
and we're we're becoming known for it because he's Mark incredible. Is he is he's incredible. incredible. So you know what? I have no problem asking because the worst case scenario, he'd just say no. Mm-hmm. I'm cool. I don't with think it. that's the worst case care. scenario. I think he could totally stop being our friend and say, "I'm sick of you guys." No, worst case scenario, he's gonna just say no. <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't seem like that bad of a scenario. I feel like worst case scenario is supposed to be like worst case scenario. That is the worst case for those who are on the receiving end of his uh, brilliance. That's mm-hmm. worst case. I, I'd, I'd be lost without him. That's true. Anyway, what are we doing? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's make a roll. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.